Section 17 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Eighth Day, May the 22nd. Part 2. Mr. Rogers, examined by Mr. Gray. I am Professor of Chemistry at St. George's School of Medicine in London. I have made experiments upon one animal, a dog poisoned by strychnia the experiments commenced at the close of last december and ended about ten days since i gave it two grains of pure strychnia in meat three days after death i removed the stomach and contents and some of the blood the blood became putrid in about ten days and i then analyzed it with a view to find strychnine i separated the strychnine by color tests I cannot say how much it was by weight. In a month or five weeks, when the matter had putrefied, I analysed the stomach and its contents. I treated it with acidulated distilled water, and succeeded in discovering strychnia in large quantities about ten days ago. I never analysed a human subject with a view to find strychnia, but I have many times done so to find other poisons strychnia must unquestionably have been discovered in this case if it had been present and the proper tests had been used cross-examined by the attorney-general i have only made one experiment if the contents of the stomach were lost it would make a difference but not if they were only shaken up the operation would then be more difficult i am a medical man i did not analyze the tissues of the body of the dog if I had tried the tissues of Cook's body, it might have been found if it were there, notwithstanding the time that had elapsed since he died. I don't say that the time would prevent its discovery if there. Re-examined by Mr. Gray. If strychnia were in the stomach, a portion would probably be smeared over the mucous membrane, and then I should expect to find it on the surface. Dr. Henry Leatherby, examined by Mr. Keneally. I am a Bachelor of Medicine, Professor of Chemistry and Toxicology in the London Hospital of Medicine, and Medical Officer of Health to the City of London. I have been engaged for a considerable time in the study of poisons and their action on the living animal economy. I have also been frequently engaged on behalf of the Crown in prosecutions in cases of this nature during the last fourteen years. I have been present during the examination of the medical witnesses, and have attended to the evidence as to the symptoms which have been described as attending the death of Cook. I have witnessed many cases of animals poisoned by strychnine, and many cases of poisoning by nux vomica in the human body, one of which was fatal. The symptoms described in this case do not accord with the symptoms I have witnessed in the case of those animals they differ in this respect in the first place i never witnessed the long interval between the administration of the poison and the commencement of the symptoms which is said to have elapsed in this case the longest interval i have known has been three-quarters of an hour and then the poison was administered under the most disadvantageous circumstances it was given on a very full stomach and in a form uneasy of solution I have seen the symptoms begin in five minutes. The average time in which they begin is a quarter of an hour. 
in all cases i have seen the system has been in that irritable state that the very lightest excitement such as an effort to move a touch a noise a breath of air would send the patient off in convulsions it is not at all probable that a person after taking strychnia could pull a bell violently any movement would excite the nervous system and bring on spasms it is not likely that a person in that state could bear to have his neck rubbed when a case of strychnia does not end fatally the first paroxysm is succeeded by others gradually shaded off the paroxysms becoming less violent every time and i agree with dr christison that they would subside in twelve or sixteen hours i have no hesitation in saying that strychnine is of all poisons either mineral or vegetable the most easy of detection i have detected very minute portions of strychnia when it is pure the twenty thousandth part of a grain can be detected i can detect the tenth part of a grain most easily in a pint of any liquid whether pure or putrid i gave one animal half a grain and i have the strychnia here now within a very small trifle i never failed to detect strychnine where it had been administered i have made post-mortem examinations on various animals killed by it i have always found the right side of the heart full the reason is that the death takes place from the fixing of the muscles of the chest by spasms so that the blood is unable to pass through the lungs and the heart cannot relieve itself from the blood flowing to it but therefore becomes gorged the lungs are congested and filled with blood i have administered strychnia in a liquid and a solid form i agree with dr taylor that it may kill in six or eleven minutes when taken in a solid state in the form of a pill or bolus i also agree with him that the first symptom is that the animal falls on its side the jaws are spasmodically closed and the slightest touch produces another paroxysm but i do not agree with him that the colouring tests are fallacious i do not agree that it is changed when it is absorbed into the blood but i agree with its absorption i think it is not changed when the body is decomposed the shaking about of the contents of the stomach with the intestines in a jar would not prevent the discovery of strychnia if it had been administered even if the contents of the stomach were lost the mucous membrane would in the ordinary course of things exhibit traces of strychnia i have studied the poison of antimony if a quantity had been introduced into brandy and water and swallowed at a gulp the effect would not be to burn the throat antimony does not possess any such quality as that of immediate burning i have turned my attention to the subject of poison for seventeen or eighteen years cross-examined by the attorney-general i am not a member of the college of physicians or of surgeons i do not now practice i have been in general practice for two or three years i gave evidence in the last case of this sort tried in this court in eighteen fifty one i gave evidence of the presence of arsenic the woman was convicted i stated that it had been administered within four hours of death i was the cause of her being respited and the sentence was not carried into effect in consequence of a letter i wrote to the home office 
other scientific gentlemen interfered and challenged the soundness of my conclusions before I wrote that letter. I have not since been employed by the Crown. Mr. Justice Cresswell, I was present at the trial. I perfectly remember it. Cross-examination continued. I detected the poison. I said in my letter that I could not speak as to possibilities, but merely as to probabilities. I have experimented on animals for a great number of years, on five recently. I have never given more than a grain, and it has always been in a solid form, in pills or bread. In the case where poison was administered under disadvantageous circumstances, it was kneaded up into a hard mass of bread. Mr. Baron Alderson, did the animal bolt it or bite it? Witness, I opened the mouth and put it into the throat. About half an hour elapsed before the symptoms appeared, in one case in which half a grain had been given. In another case, death took place within thirteen minutes. I have noticed twitching of the ears, difficulty of breathing, and other premonitory symptoms. There are little variations in the order in which the symptoms occur. I have known frequent instances in which an animal has died in the first paroxysm. I heard the evidence of Mrs. Smith's death, and I was surprised at her having got out of bed when the servant answered the bell. It is not consistent with the cases I have seen. That fact does not shake my opinion. I have no doubt that Mrs. Smith died from strychnine. Cook's sitting up in the bed and asking Jones to ring the bell is consistent with what I have observed in strychnine cases. If a man's breath is hurried, is it not natural for him to sit up? It is. I have seen cases of recovery of human subjects after taking strychnine. There is a great uniformity in its effects, that is, in their main features, but there is a small variation as to the time in which they are produced. What do you attribute Cook's death to? It is irreconcilable with everything with which I am acquainted. Is it reconcilable with any known disease you have ever seen or heard of? No. Re-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee. We are learning new facts every day, and I do not at present conceive it to be impossible that some peculiarity of the spinal cord, unrecognizable at the examination after death, may have produced symptoms like those which have been described. I, of course, include strychnia in my answer, but it is irreconcilable with everything I have seen or heard of. It is as irreconcilable with strychnia as with everything else. It is irreconcilable with every disease that I am acquainted with, natural or artificial. Touching an animal during the premonitory symptoms will bring on a paroxysm. Vomiting is inconsistent with strychnia. The Romsey case was an exceptional one, from the quantity of the dose. The ringing of the bell would have produced a paroxysm. I am still of opinion that the evidence I gave on the trial in 1851 is correct. I am not aware that there is any ground for an imputation upon me in respect of that evidence. I have no reason to think government was dissatisfied with me. I have since been employed in Crown prosecutions. After that case, Dr. Pereira came to my laboratory and asked me, as an act of mercy, to write a letter to him to show to the Home Office 
admitting the possibility of the poison which I found in the stomach having been administered longer than four hours before death. I wrote the letter, drawing a distinction between what was possible and probable, and the woman was transported for life. Mr. R. E. Gay, examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee. I am a member of the Royal College of Surgeons. I attended a person named Forster for tetanus in October 1855. He had a sore throat, muscular pains in the neck, and in the upper portion of the cervical vertebrae. He was feverish and had symptoms ordinarily attending catarrh. I put him under the usual treatment for catarrh and used embrocations externally to the muscles of the neck and throat, and also gargles. About the fourth day of my attendance, the muscular pains extended to the face. Difficulty of swallowing came on. The pains of the cervical vertebrae increased, and those of the muscles of the face, particularly the lower jaw. In the evening of the same day, the jaw became completely locked, and pains came on in the muscles of the bowels, the legs, and the arms. He became very much convulsed throughout the entire muscular system had frequent involuntary contractions of the arms and hands and legs. His difficulty of swallowing increased, and not a particle of food, solid or liquid, could be introduced into his mouth. Attempting to swallow the smallest portions brought on violent convulsions. So strong were they throughout the system that I could compare him to nothing but a piece of warped board. The head was thrown back, the abdomen thrust forward, and the legs frequently drawn up and contracted. The attempt to feed with a spoon, the opening of a window, or placing the fingers on the pulse, brought on violent convulsions. While the patient was suffering in this manner, he continually complained of great hunger, and repeatedly exclaimed that he was hungry and could not eat. He was kept alive to the fourteenth day entirely by injections of a milky and farinaceous character. He screamed repeatedly, and the noises that he made were more like those of a wild man than anything else. On the twelfth day he became insensible and continued in that state until he died, which was in the fourteenth day from the commencement of the attack of lockjaw. The man was an omnibus driver, and when I first attended him he had been suffering from sore throat for several days. There was no hurt or injury of any kind about his person that would account for the symptoms I have mentioned. His body was not opened after death because it was considered unnecessary. I consider his disease was inflammatory sore throat from cold and exposure to the weather, and that the disease assumed a tetanic form on account of the patient being a very nervous, excited, and anxious person. His condition in life was that of an omnibus conductor. He was a hard-working man and had a large family dependent upon him, and this, no doubt, acting upon his peculiar temperament, tended to produce tetanic symptoms. The witness, in conclusion, said he had not heard all the evidence in this case, but he thought it right to communicate to the prisoner's solicitor the particulars of the case to which he had now referred, as he considered it had an important bearing upon the charge against the prisoner cross-examined by the Attorney-General. The case I have mentioned was undoubtedly one of idiopathic tetanus. 
It is the only one of the kind I ever had to deal with. It arose from exposure to cold acting upon a nervous and irritable temperament. I have a good many patients who are nervous and irritable, but I never met with such another case. The disease was altogether progressive from the first onset, and although for a short time there was a remission of the symptoms, they invariably recurred. The locking of the jaw was one of the very first symptoms that made their appearance. Sergeant Shee then addressed the court, and said that the next witness he proposed to call would occupy some time in examination, and as it was now nearly six o'clock, he suggested it would be better to adjourn the examination to the next day. The Lord Chief Justice said he had no objection to the course proposed by the learned sergeant, and he then inquired of him how much time the case for the defence was likely to occupy. Sergeant Shee said he hoped to conclude the defence tomorrow, and he should endeavour to do so if he possibly could. The Lord Chief Justice said there was no desire to hurry him. It was most essential in so important an inquiry that the most ample opportunity should be allowed for a full and satisfactory investigation. The court then adjourned till the following morning at ten o'clock. End of section 17